Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have successfully made it to the end of the week, but boy, do we have some doozies for you today. Uh, no good martinis. Could be bad, bad, crazy. Could be bad, crazy, crazy. Really could be all crazy in some ways. But three uh, interesting martinis for conservatives today. Let's begin with martini number one. Uh, President Trump is agreeing to sign the budget bill, which provides nearly $1.4 billion for border security. Uh, There's some other issues in there as well that border hawks are not happy with, like allowing local jurisdictions to veto construction of a wall in those particular areas. There's also some provisions that uh, folks are worried could give protected status to smugglers for unaccompanied alien children and so forth. But the president is going to sign the bill, is signing the bill, in conjunction with declaring a national emergency on the border, which will free up roughly $8 billion to construct a whole lot more of the wall that he would like to do. The president today explaining this, or at least he planned to, in a Rose Garden press conference He took the unusual step of winging it, not having any prepared statement whatsoever. Uh, So it's a little hard to get sound bites here from the the differing thoughts. But first of all, he explains the problem with the southern border. Today I'm announcing uh, several critical actions that my administration is taking to confront a problem that we have right here at home. We fight wars that are 6,000 miles away, wars that we should have never been in in many cases. But we don't control our own border. Now, you have a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans urging the president not to do this. They believe it's not constitutional. The president says it is. A lot of presidents have done this. So what's the big deal? So I'm going to be signing a national emergency. And it's been signed many times before. It's been signed by other presidents. From 1977 or so, it gave the presidents the power. There's rarely been a problem. They sign it. Nobody cares. I guess they weren't very exciting. But nobody cares. They sign it for far less important things in some cases, in many cases. We're talking about an invasion of our country. Now, folks on the left and possibly some on the right are promising to mount legal challenges to this uh, president's efforts to go around the legislative process to get money for border wall funding. And the president offered this analysis of the legal fight to come. I'll sign the final papers as soon as I get into the Oval Office, and we will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there, and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court, just like the ban. So it sounds like a bit like a high schooler there, Jim, but he's not wrong about how this is likely to pan out, although we'll see if he were to actually win at the Supreme Court. Uh, The weirdest part of this, though, came in the Q&A section when the president, who just got done talking about how he has no other choice, there's this invasion at the border, there's this emergency, but uh, here's his explanation for why he's doing it. In fact, the primary fight was on the wall. Everything else we have so much, as I said, I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. But on the wall, they skimped. So I did. I was successful in that sense. um, But I want to do it faster. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this. But I'd rather do it much faster. 
So, Jim, the oddity of this press conference is almost distracting me from the larger issue at hand here and whether or not the president has the constitutional ability to do this and whether he should do this. A lot of folks think it uh, sets a dangerous precedent for action from future presidents that we would heartily disagree with since we generally agree with what he wants to do here, just not the way he's doing it. What do you think? If you know you're going to head into a really big legal fight about whether what you're reacting to is really a genuine national emergency, and whether you really had no other options, speed was of the essence, time was of the essence, that this was not the sort of thing you might have <clears throat> spent several months debating, uh, which tends to undermine the argument that it's, a, that it's an emergency. You probably want to avoid the words, I didn't need to do this. I can already see Democratic state attorney generals pointing to that and underlining it in red in their uh, briefs they'll be filing with the court. You know, by, by Trump's own words, this is not a coherent, logical argument. He really wants money for the wall. He actually got a little bit of money for the wall, $1.37 billion. Not nearly as much as he wanted, but, you know, 55 miles worth for getting started on it. Although, according to Mark Krikorian, it sounds like there's like this poison pill in there where it can only be built in certain areas. And if the towns object... They can't do it and has to have a review process, et cetera. So it's possible that there's a whole bunch of tripwires in there designed to ensure that this doesn't actually get built. But in other words, you can't say, well, I really wanted something from Congress, but Congress won't do it. Therefore, I'm declaring an emergency. And if this feels familiar to you, like people say, well, Obama did pen and a phone. Uh, Isn't this the same thing? Yeah, (laughs) but we thought that was bad. And it doesn't mean that this is, you know, uh, that this is good. But the other thing I keep, I went back and I checked and I wrote about this in the jolt today, Greg, Obama's I have a pen and I have a phone approach didn't really work the way he wanted because yeah, he did DACA. Uh, but remember Trump rescinded DACA, right? That, that was effectively an executive order that was basically saying, we're not going to enforce the law for these folks. We've decided that they're, that they're not a threat. They're not a menace. They don't need to be deported. And we can have that argument. It's worth noting that when the presidents changed, the executive order got rescinded. This is why you try to do stuff through legislation. Legislation is not as easily repealed or undone. But people forget, after the 2014 midterms, Obama announced an expansion of DACA called the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, which basically was if you were a parent of one of these kids, you weren't going to get deported either. And this was a case where a whole bunch of Republican state attorney generals said, whoa, 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 this is not the sort of thing you can just do without legislation. This is effectively rewriting the immigration laws of the country on the fly. Um, This has to be done through legislation. You can't just, you know, willy-nilly do this by executive order. The federal district court in Texas issues an injunction in preventing this program from being enacted. I know Republicans are very upset about federal district court judges in Hawaii and various other places uh, issuing injunctions. But this this did work to our advantage not that long ago. There is a system why judicial review is a good idea. They fight about it. The the Obama administration keeps trying to get the injunction lifted. The the district courts and panels of judges keep saying, nope, got to stay in place. We're not sure you have the constitutional authority to do this gets fight all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in a normal environment, Greg, this is where it would be resolved. Except folks may recall that at that point, uh, Justice Scalia had passed away. There was the fight. Uh, the Republican Senate was not interested in confirming uh, Obama's nominee. And so there was, a, there was eight justices, and it was a 4-4 split. That 4-4 split kept the injunction in place. One possibility, as people expect, this is going to be tied up in court. You're probably going to find a judge issuing an injunction on this pretty quickly. Uh, because they'll probably be open to the argument that this is not within the normal enumerated powers of the president. 
He doesn't just get to move around funding willy-nilly once in, in violation. You know, if he wants this money, Congress has to enact it. And I heard somebody says, well, somebody arguing with me on Twitter yesterday said, Jim, you know, if Republicans want to, you know, if Congress really objects to this, they can use the power of the purse. And I thought, and I was like, well, the fact that they just, they only agreed to 1.37 billion means that they did, <laughs> right? This is, that's how the system is supposed to work. We gave you 1.37 billion and that's what you get. And you're not allowed to take other money from the defense budget and put it into wall funding because you think it should go there. Uh, you can't just ignore what the appropriations bills say. We give you a little bit of leeway in how you spend the money, but ultimately Congress has to, has to have a say in this because under the constitution, Congress has the power of the purse. All spending bills originate in Congress. My guess is you get some similar outcome to this. And I would not be surprised if at some point the Supreme Court said, you know what, this is not within the president's power. Can't do it. Undone. Injunction stays in place. If it doesn't block it, Greg, we may end up having this terrible precedent where a future Democratic president enacts the Green New Deal or enacts a national emergency on gun violence and calls for confiscation or some other terrible, you know, uh, ideas like this. And, you know, I, I, a lot of this presidency, Greg, has been a fight between con- conservatives who understand the Constitution and understand that these rules and the balance of power and checks and balances are in place for the good of everybody. Even if they work against you on Monday, they may work to your advantage on Tuesday, right? They, 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 you know, you're not always going to get what you want versus right-wing radicals who want what they want and they don't care how they get it. And they are probably every bit as dangerous to the Constitution as left-wingers are, Greg. Oh, well said, Jim. And I think it's worth reiterating the point that what the president wants to get done here. We largely agree with. We want a very secure uh, southern border. We want to know who's coming into the country. We don't want all this chaos that is happening down there, but there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And uh, as you have said many times, conservatives ought to not only want certain policy provisions, they ought to want it done in the right way. It's a frustrating argument because you, you have the circumstance in which you can be you can be right on the merits. You can be pursuing the right policy. But at the heart of it, I guess, is the question of does the ends justify the means? And those of us who believe in the Constitution, no, <laughs> right? The, the, the founding fathers understood that everybody's convinced that their idea is a truly terrific good idea. The communists who took over the Soviet, the Russia and turned into the Soviet Union were totally convinced they were building a better society. Everybody's convinced they're on the side of the angels. That's why it's dangerous. <laughs> and that's why you need these checks and balances. Otherwise, uh, uh, that's that's you know, otherwise you end up with a, a more and more power concentrated in the executive. Uh, and that's not what America is supposed to be about. All right, let's move on to our second martini now. And for that, we go to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. On Thursday, Amazon announced it was scrapping the New York City portion of its second Amazon headquarters. They're still going to go ahead with the project in northern Virginia, but they're no longer going to work with New York State and New York City. Just too much of a hassle. This has infuriated a lot of people up there, including Governor Cuomo, who is blaming local officials who were too unreasonable in dealing with Amazon and what the state was hoping to achieve there. And we've talked uh, before, especially when this announcement was made about the dual second headquarters, that uh, crony capitalism is a bad way to do business and these states and locales throwing all these different uh, tax incentives and so forth at companies like Amazon is not the best way to attract businesses to your local communities and your states. But one of those celebrating the fact Amazon is scrapping the plans for New York City is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She says this is an example of how everyday people can band together and stop the powerful. 
NBC News caught up with her on Capitol Hill and asked her about, hey, what about those 25,000 jobs now that aren't coming to your area? What do you say to those that um, criticize them pulling out that you know, the district now is going to lose 25,000 jobs that could have come mm-hmm. there? Well, one of those things is, A, we were subsidizing those jobs. So for the, the city was paying for those jobs. So frankly, if we were willing to give Amazon three, if we're will, willing to give away $3 billion for this deal, we could invest those $3 billion in our district ourselves if we wanted to. We could hire out more teachers. We can fix our subways. We can put a lot of people to work for that money if we wanted to. Jim, she actually thinks there's a giant pile of billions of dollars of money just waiting for Amazon uh, as opposed to tax incentives as Amazon pays taxes in the years to come, which they now won't be doing. Uh, The best illustration of this I saw on Twitter was uh, someone calling up a pizza joint, ordering a bunch of pizzas and saying they have a $10 coupon. And then the person at the pizza joint saying, no, 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 no coupons for you. That's not fair. So the person takes their business elsewhere. And then the person uh, who works for the pizza joint tells their boss, hey, I just saved you $10. (laughs) You know, Greg, if you, here's the thing. If you went back, we went in the time machine and talked to 20 something uh, Jim Garrity, there'd be a bunch of stuff that I would not know as well as I know today. It takes a while to get to understand this stuff. And I don't like making fun of someone for not understanding something. But when you get to Congress, the excuses start to fall away. And just remember early in the week, we were talking about uh, Senator Kamala Harris and the uh, mixing up refunds and your total amounts of withholding in your total tax bill, right? And she, well, people are getting smaller refunds. They must have had a tax increase. No, no. <laughs> if they're having less withheld each month or each pay period, uh, then you're going to end up with uh, with with that. You're still getting more money. Your total tax bill goes down. You just don't get it in the form of a refund at the end of the year because they're taking out less each pay period. In this case, with her, this is a, a really weird, complicated issue. Because, Greg, I really love Amazon. I, I you know, use them all the time. All my books are available on it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it, I have no gripes with Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, his, his you know, various texting of things notwithstanding. But I don't like it when state or city governments go to businesses and say, we're going to give you a special deal if you relocate or if you do this. Uh, I didn't like Foxconn in Wisconsin. I really liked Scott Walker, but that was a bad deal and a bad proposal. I don't like the government picking winners and losers in the market. I don't like, well, you're a powerful and big company, so we're going to give you a special deal. Usually it comes in the form of tax breaks. Usually it comes in the form of, you know, uh, either reduced payments or delaying the payments or making the payments conditional on a certain amount of jobs created, all kind of stuff. My attitude is whatever your tax rate is, is going to be, it should be the same for everybody or at least every business. Um, you should not be picking and choosing favorites and saying, well, we really like this company, so we're going to give them a special deal. That's exactly what happened in both New York and in Virginia. By the way, Greg, you want to talk about a weird moment. I'm kind of envious of New York City. I'm envious of New York City and, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because they didn't like it. Here's the thing. It was big tax breaks for Amazon. And I think the fair argument can be said, why does Amazon need this for this uh, for putting the headquarters here bunch of tech companies have moved to D.C. all the time. In fact, the big cities like New York and the D.C. area are the exact last ones that should be offering these kinds of incentives because lots of people move here. Lots of people want to work here. Lots of people, they, they already have all the stuff. If you're a really economically depraved, if Detroit said, we're going to give you this kind of deal, I could at least understand it and say, okay, Detroit really needs that. Apparently, the understanding is that Amazon didn't believe that they could pick uh, lesser populated, less thriving cities 
I'm going to pick Cincinnati. Uh, and, and for listeners in Cincinnati, I'm sorry. I'm mostly basing my opinion of your city on the Bengals. Um, <laughs> you know, but again, picking some place that was not seen as a part of a thriving tech corridor and putting Amazon there that, you know, you plant your flag and maybe people start moving to it and all of a sudden it energizes the city. But it's worth noting here in Virginia, the thing sailed through with nine minutes of debate and it was signed into law by Governor Blackface. So um, way to go, Virginia. Way to go. But, you know, New York's, a lot of bunch of New Yorkers saw it as corporate welfare. But where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets it wrong is that it's not that the city was saying, here, here's a big pile of money for moving here. They were saying, if you move here, all the stuff you would traditionally pay in corporate taxes and property taxes and stuff like that, we're going to give you a break on you. Add it all out. And also, we're going to, the other thing is also, my understanding, at least for some of the stuff in Crystal City, and I assume it was similar for the site up in New York, um, we're going to make various infrastructure improvements for the location to help you with traffic, stuff like that. And that, that's, you know, fairly standard for these kinds of deals. I'm not a huge fan of it, but sometimes that stuff is just necessary to get the workers in and out of where they need to go. You add it all up, it becomes to $3 billion, But that $3 billion only comes into the city, or that $3 billion, you know, break only occurs if Amazon is paying some massive amount in its usual corporate taxes and uh, property taxes, not even counting all the income taxes that the workers would be working there before. I did not want to see Amazon getting a special deal. So the part of me is cheering uh, that New York said, no, no, we're not going to give it to you. But it's fascinating that she has managed to botch this uh, and that she apparently didn't really understand what was at stake and how it was going to work from the very beginning. Um, she's you know, one of those cases where, you know, I guess a broken clock is right twice a day. I don't like corporate welfare because it picks winners and losers in the marketplace. Greg, my suspicion is she doesn't like corporate welfare because it involves corporations. <laughs> Jim, this has been a pretty bewildering first set of two martinis today because you get distracted by different things. You've got, on the one hand, what's Trump doing with his uh, constitutional prerogatives here versus what in the world was going on with that press conference. And then with uh, the second story here, we don't like crony capitalism, but man, this woman knows nothing about economics. Yeah, it, it's weird when the economically illiterate end up being, you know, in fact, maybe we should rethink our thing, you know, being on the same side as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez should probably make me say, wait a minute, am I sure I'm, am I sure I'm doing the right thing here? <laughs> All right, Jim, let's move on to our final martini, also crazy. This is courtesy of the Boston Herald and... President Trump has a primary challenger. The last time we saw former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, he was the vice presidential nominee for the Libertarian Party, running on the same ticket as a guy who was conducting national television interviews with his tongue hanging out of his mouth. Boston Herald. Former Massachusetts Governor William F. Weld is launching a presidential exploratory committee to challenge President Trump in the Republican primaries, saying the country is in grave peril and he cannot sit quietly on the sidelines any longer. Weld becomes the first Republican to officially announce he is exploring a run against Trump and sets up a potential matchup in the first in the nation New Hampshire presidential primary and in other states. In prepared remarks at the Politics and Eggs Breakfast in Bedford, New Hampshire, Weld delivered a blistering critique of Trump, saying, quote, we have a president whose priorities are skewed towards promotion of himself rather than toward the good of the country. To compound matters, he said, our president is simply too unstable to carry out the duties of the highest executive office, which include the specific duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed in a competent and professional manner. He is simply in the wrong place. So, Jim, we know that uh, primary challenges to incumbents usually don't turn out too well for the challengers. 
and they often don't turn out very well for the incumbents once they get to the general election. So what do you make of William Weld doing this? First of all, my buddy Michael Graham was up at this event and he you know, quickly hammered out a column where he said that William Weld is the absolute worst possible choice to run against Trump in a Republican primary. Greg, you think about that, it's really saying something considering <laughs> how we live in a world where John Kasich and Jeff Flake exist. Um, that, that's a high bar to clear. And yeah, I mean, the guy who was running on the Libertarian ticket last time around doesn't seem like the natural pick for this. You know, he... He was always, you know, um, by no means the most rigidly conservative guy. He's, you know, pro-choice. I, I don't think that there's an enormous appetite for uh, pro-choice candidates in the Republican primaries. Pro-amnesty. Uh, he endorsed Obama. Uh, had some pr- a bunch of praise for Hillary Clinton. Was buddies with them back in the 90s. Probably the single best uh, assessment you can make of this is that if you've been wondering what is the absolute minimum baseline of opposition to Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary? William Weld is going to show us. What's the argument for Bill Weld? He's not Donald Trump. That's where it begins, and that's about where it ends, at least in terms of traditional Republicans. Um, and, you know, who knows? Maybe in some places like New Hampshire, it'll be a little higher. I don't think it'll be enough to win a state anywhere. You know, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 20%. Maybe if Trump has a really lousy stretch, maybe it's maybe it's 30%. But uh, no, you're not winning the nomination here. You, you mentioned that historically having a, an incumbent president, having a primary challenger can do some damage. Thinking of Pat Buchanan against George H.W. Bush back in 92. But uh, honestly, if William Weld prevents you from winning re-election, I think you were doomed. Uh, because, and the other thing is also, I, for people to say, oh, Jim, who would you like to see? Look, people who have listened to this podcast know I got a lot of problems with Donald Trump. I also have the recognition that at this point, the people who are right of center who don't like Donald Trump have by and large left the Republican Party. Uh, I think this is why you see Trump getting high 80s, low 90s approval rating amongst Republicans. The, Repu- the kinds of Republicans who wouldn't like what he's doing are now self-identifying as independents. They, they, you know, after 2016, they concluded, well, I guess I'm not a Republican anymore. So I don't think there's an enormous mass of right of center people out there who are yearning for a non-Trump presidential option. Uh, And the second thing is that if you have real beefs with Trump, as I do, I want Donald Trump in 2020 to rise or fall on his own merits. I don't want him to have any inconvenient excuse. Well, I could have won the general, but I didn't because of that primary challenger of William Weld or, or Kasich or Flake or whoever. Um, that, that you basically need to have a, uh, that, that I want, you know, Trump to rise or fall. And if you, if I've got problems with this, I want to show in 2020, well, we tried it and it didn't work. I don't want to have these, oh, we were stabbed in the back, uh, alternative narratives floating around. Um, now again, I think will I think Bill Wells is going to have a hard time breaking 10%, 20% in most of these States. There might be some protest votes and stuff like that. The man is not a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. Um, now, the interesting thing is that way back when in the 90s, when he was running against John Kerry and stuff like that, he was seen as kind of uh, wacky and, and unpredictable and charismatic. Um, I don't remember anybody uh, having that kind of reaction when he was the running mate to uh, uh, Johnson last time. And I also would note, Greg, um, he kept saying nice things about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so it's kind of like the, ap- the opposite of an attack dog running mate vice president. It's kind of like the, hey, this, the Democratic nominee is really awesome which is, you know, probably not what the libertarian ticket was really itching to, to hear from its uh, vice presidential ticket. So, you know, some can you have candidates where they have uh, their listing, you know, the support in polls and there's, you know, 
They're they're five percent, two percent, and then they're the asterisks. Bill Weld is destined to be an asterisk on this uh, presidential campaign. Couple quick thoughts here, Jim. First of all, I can definitely see the media's tongue start wagging if, in fact, Weld were to pretty much get what John Kasich got and maybe even do a little bit better in New Hampshire since it neighbors Massachusetts where Weld is from. They would certainly love to spend a lot of ink and oxygen on that. Also, I think it's potentially good news for Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. There had been some rumors that he's thinking about challenging uh, Trump in a Republican primary in 2020. Uh, Whoever ends up challenging a sitting president most likely is going to end up persona non grata in their own party. And so why not let William Weld deal with all that instead of himself? Yeah, I just don't see any upside for any. If you really wanted to challenge Trump, the argument against him would be helped by a recession, right? Right now, the economy is doing quite well. You would need right of center people to perceive the president as a experiment that failed. And I don't think they're there yet. Um, They may never get there. And oh, by the way, we should recognize the possibility. Maybe maybe the president will succeed. Um, He does a lot of stuff that drives us nuts. But a bunch of the here's the thing. Trump has these wildly erratic personal habits and statements and Twitter tirades and and all these kinds of There's all kinds of personality problems for how he approaches the job of president. And I think you can safely say it's not that he's opposed to the U.S. Constitution. I think in his decision making, he just doesn't think about the U.S. Constitution. But you'd need somebody who could make the argument against Trump, by and large, from the right. And that's not where Kasich was going. That's not what Jeff Flake was doing. I don't see Bill Weld riding in on a white horse to save the cause of conservatism. Um, and so my suspicion, when you're running for that, you're running as the the John Kasich slot in, in you know, excuse me, correction, I should say the John Weaver slot. <laughs> Um, in the past couple cycles, which was McCain, which was John Huntsman, which was John Kasich. Your name has to be John, apparently. And you end up running as the media's favorite Republican. That's, yeah, I'm not that conservative. I'm centrist. Well, that's not, you know, one, that's not going to sell in this prime, this kind of party environment <laughs> as is. Finally, maybe this may be the last thought of a, a long running uh, episode, Greg. Look, Bill, well, what do we need you for when we have Howard Schultz? <laughs> <laughs> What'd you ever do for us? Jim, a lot of craziness this week. I have no reason to think next week will be any different. See you on Monday for the President's Day edition. Yep. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please be sure to join us again on Monday for the next edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Have a great weekend, everyone.